A gospel reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning with verse 18, the gospel of the Lord. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. The boy became involved with the ruffians of his village. It's an ancient Asian legend preserved by Curtis E. Leans in his book, The Man with Dirty Hands. The boy became involved with the ruffians of the village who persuaded him to join them in a robbery of his own father's treasury house. After the robbery was over, however, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of the crime all alone. And so the young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends and he had betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime was that he had brought public dishonor on his family name. And in a culture where ancestors are worshipped and family integrity was a sacred trust, this was the worst wrong of all. Broken, deeply repentant, he went to his father and begged forgiveness. And graciously, forgiveness was granted. And the father called all of the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and return of his son. And when all had enjoyed the banquet to the fullest, the father stood and he lifted his cup of rice wine for a toast. And as the son drank deeply the contents of his cup, he grabbed his throat and he fell backward to the ground, dead. He had been poisoned. The father, with ceremonial dignity, nodded to all of the guests. Each, in turn, graciously and politely bowed to the father as they silently left the banquet hall. All was now put to right. The son had paid the price of his pardon with poison. His honor had been restored. The family integrity and the family honor had been reestablished. And the incident was now closed. It's a story that still resonates in much of the world today where the honor and the righteousness of the family must be upheld. Sinners have no place where they bring shame upon the family name. We're going to look at a passage in a letter from St. James, the brother of Jesus. It's the very closing words of this letter in which he gives a different vision for the church as a family. Let's look at James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 and then verses 19 and 20. This is God's Word. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And in verse 19, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What do we see here? What we see here is a vision for the church as a haven for sinners. Why do we need the church to be a haven for sinners? Well, the first answer for why we need this is because of what's outside. What's outside the church, the Bible says, is death. In verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way saves him from death. Do you get that? There is death outside. It's pretty strong language. James is is working with an assumption that to lead a life of unrepentant sin, hardness of heart, to leave the faith of Jesus is to lead a life that leads to destruction. I think a lot of times, if I'm honest with myself, I can see all sorts of ways I try to justify my actions through Logical manipulation or appealing to widely held values in the surrounding culture, the fact that everybody does whatever it is that I'm trying to justify. And I, I think all of us, if we're honest, are prone to this. Um, I, as a pastor, have watched people come up with some very complex and intricate excuses for abandoning their marriage. Uh, cheating on our taxes, having an affair, excusing racist attitudes, uh, not seeking somebody's forgiveness because of what they did, as if that's relevant. Yeah, our actions have consequences, James is saying. He's saying that if you see someone who is your fellow Christian and they appear to be walking toward a cliff, it's your job to go and alert them to the danger because outside on the other end of that cliff is death. And no matter how much we can support ourselves or get you know, people to, to support our decision to walk off a cliff, you're still walking off a cliff. And that's why James says that to pull someone back from that ledge is to save them from death. You say, wait a minute, Greg. Here James is talking about how what we do with our lives affects our eternal salvation. How does that jive with those 13 letters in which St. Paul seems to say just the opposite. You know, Paul says, you know, we maintain that a man is justified before God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. He says to him who does not work but trusts God, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's all through faith alone that we're reconciled to God. And yet James is saying, if you harden your heart and walk away and live a life of unrepentant sin, you will die. And he means eternally. He means judgment. How do they fit? How do these two pieces of the puzzle fit together? Because they seem on the surface from one angle to be saying just the opposite of one another. Okay, the answer is that while we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus alone, if you turn to Jesus, he is bound by his own promise to receive you and welcome you. We are justified before God in that sense, are reconciled to God through faith in Christ alone, but that faith is not a faith that stands alone. 
uh, you know, the, the same work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, gives us new birth, awakens us so that the promise of Christ is beautiful instead of uninteresting. The same work of the Holy Spirit to take us from spiritual death to spiritual life, to, to, to quicken us uh, in theological language, to regenerate us unto new life. That same work of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ and forgives us and clothes us in his righteousness and gives us peace with God is the same work of the Holy Spirit that changes us and makes us increasingly hungry for God, that we want to serve him. It's the same work of the Holy Spirit that when we do harden our hearts, he convicts us and he, he, he shows us that we can't continue in that indefinitely, but he breaks us and brings us to repentance. It's not faith plus works that leads to reconciliation with God. It's faith that leads to reconciliation with God plus a changed life. A readiness to walk with Jesus. And you may wander for a season, uh, but that work of the Spirit that brought you to faith will also preserve you in that faith as one who is learning to walk with God. This is why Scripture consistently commands us to persevere in our faith to the very end. It's why Jesus speaks of, of daily picking up our cross and following him. It's why scripture warns us against falling away from the faith. It's why scripture warns us that those who abandon Christ through their lives or through their words are ultimately lost. It's why in the book of Revelation, each letter that Jesus gives to his churches, he then says to those who overcome, I will bring incredible blessing and salvation. And yet at the same point, you see in Philippians 1 where Paul has the confidence that he's speaking to actual Christians who had been brought to life. And so he can say that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's, it's, it's interesting in 1 John, John writes to the churches and talks about some people who abandoned the faith. You know, the, the young, restless, and apostate. Uh, and he says this, he says, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had truly belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their departure made it clear that none of them belonged to us. You say, Greg, that's a cop out. You're just saying, oh, they weren't really Christians. No, that's what the Bible is saying. Because the work of God that changes us and brings us to faith is the same work of God that keeps us from ultimately walking away. But it's an incredible tragedy that James is speaking into because you can have all your theological I's dotted. can have all my theological T's crossed, but if I'm not following Jesus with my life, this, the faith I have is a devil's faith. It's a cognitive faith. It's not a heart surrender to the Lord Jesus. It's not entrusting my life to him and trusting him to be my actual savior and my actual Lord. James has warned us about how the devil believes and shudders, meaning the devil has his theology perfect. He knows his theology better than you. He knows what's true. He hates it. He knows Jesus is Lord. He hates the fact because cognitive knowledge does not save. You know, I'm sure in Dante's Inferno, if he were writing his Inferno today, I'm sure somewhere near the bottom would be a big room for the Presbyterians who trusted in their Reformed theology instead of trusting in Jesus, to whom that Reformed theology is pointing us. You know, it's possible to be in church your entire life and not get the gospel. You can put coin after coin after coin into the soda machine, but if the coins aren't falling, if you're not hearing them click, then you're not going to get your soda, folks. 
It matters how we live our life. And James is pleading with us. Faith without works is a dead faith, not a saving faith. It's not a faith in Jesus. And such faith can't save. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. Let me share an unpopular perspective. I need the church to be a haven for sinners. Because outside of the church, there is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is no salvation apart from being engrafted into His body. To turn a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. It's like St. Cyprian said 1,800 years ago, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside of the church, there's no salvation. St. Augustine said, you can't have God as your father without having church as your mother. John Calvin in the 16th century said, outside of the church, there's naught but ruin and damnation. He's not saying that there can't be somebody who believes in Jesus and, and, and doesn't make it into a church building who, that, that they're cut off. Sorry, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the way God works is when he brings us to faith, he brings us into a community, into a family. And outside of that family, friends, if you wander outside of that family, you go your own way. Friends, it is death. And if you truly belong to God, He will bring you back. He will bring you back humbled and ready to learn and to grow and to feast upon the incredible banquet that our Lord sets before us in His Word. The world really is that fallen. Reality is that broken. Humanity is that estranged from God. We're that lost. It's not make-believe. It's not just an inspiring fairy tale that we have that makes us feel special. The Bible says there is no difference between religious and non-religious, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We enter this life already kicked out of the garden. And only Jesus can bring us back in. We're talking about reality. We're talking about Human beings created by God, but not reconciled to Him, but rather living in, in disregard to Him. And, and we can't fix that. I've been there. I know what that life looks like. We cannot save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing any of us can do about it. But Jesus can do everything, and He did do everything about it. Trust in Him. Walk with Him. And when you see somebody walking away from Jesus, do not stand on the sidelines eating popcorn and watch. Go after Him. Because whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death. Friends, I need my church to be a haven for sinners because I am a sinner. And the alternative is death. And goodness knows, we got a multitude of sins. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will cover over a multitude of sins in verse 20. A multitude. It should sound familiar because the one disarmingly beautiful thing about church is when you show up at church with your multitude of sins, you're showing up at a place filled with people who are exactly like you. You know, church is not a good person telling other good people how to become better. Church is like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. 
You go to an AA meeting and you walk in. It doesn't matter whether you're a CEO or a janitor. You see somebody there, one thing you know about them, they're a drunk too. And nobody feels ashamed of it because everybody in here is here for the same reason. We're all a bunch of drunks. We're all alcoholics. That's why we're at Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what church is because we're all sin addicts. We're all prone to wander. We're prone to leave our Lord. And, 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 and coming into church, it doesn't matter whether you're a CEO or a janitor. We're all here for the same reason. We're all here because we are sin addicts looking for grace, looking for support, looking for the church to be a haven for sinners like me. Yeah, you go to an AA meeting and you look over and you see your boss there and you, you're not going to freak out. It's more like, you know... <laughs> You come to church, we're all the same. That's the beauty. We've all got a multitude of sins. That's why we need the church to be a haven for people like us, because that's what we are. And because of that, we know we're prone to wander. Verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, that means we are prone to get into trouble, prone to go places we shouldn't go, prone to get stuck, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The Bible calls us sheep. And as Americans, if you're American and you were raised in a suburb somewhere, you probably think of sheep as fluffy things that give you like cashmere sweaters. But, um, but if you're a shepherd, you have a different perspective of sheep because your relationship with, with sheep is mainly about um, protecting them from wolves and going after the ones that get stuck. We've got a, pic, we've got a, a video here of what shepherding looks like. Um, don't know if you've seen this. It's an actual video. Um, it's really interesting um, what he's doing. Um, I don't even need to add commentary at this point. Um, but sometimes you get stuck. Um, go places you shouldn't go. <laughs> I'm getting away from this guy. Like, whoa, Jesus, that was good, but woo, leave me alone. You know, we're sheep. If any of you should wander, you know, because we're prone to wander. We're prone to get stuck. And, and friends, uh, sometimes I need somebody to pull me out of a hole. And I don't need them to judge me. Greg, how'd you get in that hole? You know, we're, we're, we're sheep. We, we wander. We get stuck. And Jesus is the good shepherd who pulls us out and he calls us to shepherd one another. If any of you should wander, we need somebody to pull us out. The church is a haven. For Christians who are prone to wander, a community that's safe for people like us, for sinners who need that safe and welcoming family that will always take us back and provide the challenge and the structure and the support because we're prone to wander. It's the church as a haven for sinners. So, what's that look like? A couple things. One, an incredible openness about brokenness. Verse 15 is so matter of fact. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Well, of course you'll be forgiven. That's the promise of God, that God wants us to hold him to this one, to be a, a, a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus, uh, to be a haven uh, for sinners. It means the church is a safe place to talk about your addiction, to talk about your marriage problems, to talk about your control issues. 
to talk about your sexual sins, a safe place to talk about your prison time or your mental illness or your first marriage. It means the church is a safe place to talk about your bankruptcy or to talk about your overeating. It means this is a safe place to process racist assumptions you never realized that you carried with you because you were blind to it. It's not just sins either. It's the broader brokenness, uh, a safe place who, for those of us who through no fault of our own carry burdens that are hard to carry. The church is a haven for couples struggling with infertility. Church is a haven for believers wrestling with mental illness. The church is a haven for those who are poor through no fault of their own. You know, the, the church as a safe place for broken people. Um, you know, I, uh, I broke my foot three weeks ago. No idea how. Um, probably moving furniture after a flood or laying carpet tile. But um, finally Monday, I was like, finally went to the doctor. My foot hurts. Tells me, ah, you broke it. Well, how long ago? Two to three weeks, looks like. Um, you know, x-rays. And uh, as I was, you know, processing it, he told me, the doctor told me, you got this boot, it's going to be really ugly, hard to accessorize. And, uh, but he told me, you can take it off for short periods if you need to, like the shower, you can take it off to sleep. And I, what I heard is, you can take it off on Sunday morning, nobody needs to see it. And I thought the irony, making the church a safe place for the broken but I don't want you to see the boot. God, I want to explain the church as a haven for broken people from a position of strength. And he says, no. We got to be broken, friends. We got to own it. We got to be real. And yet, this means certainly vulnerability, but uh, uh, openness about our brokenness, but also vulnerability. You know, he says in verse 16, confess your sins to each other. Um, There's a difference between openness and vulnerability. Uh, Openness means allowing some access or passage or a view through an empty space. It's not closed. It's not blocked up. Openness is is letting somebody know about your struggle to maintain integrity in your workplace. Openness is letting somebody know about a struggle with pornography. Openness is letting someone know and see the pain and the wounds that caused it. That's openness. But vulnerability goes about three steps further. Uh, Vulnerability is making yourself susceptible to physical or emotional injury at their behalf. Openness is saying I have a problem. Vulnerability is when I actually hand you the scalpel and say cut. Vulnerability means confessing sins to one another and not in a matter-of-fact way. It's not, yeah, I had this struggle. I'm dealing with it. That's openness. Vulnerability says, dude, I really dropped the ball last weekend and I'm so ashamed of myself. Can I tell you what happened? And maybe you'll have some words for me. Can I let you in? Vulnerability is giving somebody access in a way that involves risk on our part. You know, that desire to protect ourselves. We desire to protect our hearts. We, we have, have cautions, and yet one author uh, cautions us on that point. He says those, those safe and protected places that you create around your heart, the ones that are designed so that no one can hurt you, have one fatal flaw. If no one can hurt you, no one can touch you either. Brene Brown talks about how we both love vulnerability and fear it. Uh, she says, when we see raw truth displayed by others, it moves us deeply. But we're terrified to go there ourselves. Vulnerability is a double-edged sword. It's only when we're most vulnerable that we can experience the connection with God and others for which we were designed. 
but it also is exactly when we are most vulnerable that we can get the most wounded. To be vulnerable is to let someone touch your heart, your soul. If you can't get hurt in the process, then you're not really being vulnerable. It's not becoming needy. That's something different. But it means exposing yourself emotionally. And that's risky. You have to ask, is this a safe person? Will this person love me if I make myself vulnerable? You, you can't have this kind of relationship with very many people. But the church to be a haven for sinners means you've got to be able to develop some relationships like this where you can be vulnerable and confess your sins to one another. That means you know being known and being loved as you are and not as the image you try to project. It's what the church looks like as a haven for sinners. But there's more. It means a commitment to intervene on each other's behalf. If you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back. That spiritual family to keep to keep an eye on each other, to notice who's not here, to warmly welcome people back in. A church family that, that's not surprised that we have to pull people out of holes. You know, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. That's what it looks like to be a haven, and that involves risk. It's risky to pursue someone because you may end the relationship by pursuing them if they don't want to be pursued. Uh, it, it's to risk to sacrifice yourself for their sake, to create this kind of haven. You know, you can't change someone's heart when you see them walking away. You cannot be the Holy Spirit. If you try to change their heart, they will resent you because they will feel you trying to control them. But to just stand by and watch, you've got to say something. To pursue, to try, to see if, if you can bring some word of grace, some act of love, some, some warm embrace to bring them back to their senses. How is it possible to take that kind of risk, folks? It's possible because with God, there is forgiveness. In verse 15, if he sinned, he'll be what? He'll be forgiven. To be forgiven means that God's never going to bring it up again. It means he's not going to hold it against you, whatever you've done. Jesus is speaking to all of us. He's speaking to you right now. He's speaking to you, looking at you, saying, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. There is grace with God our Father. There is, there is relationship with Him and communion with Him fully restored. That's the beauty of free forgiveness. It means there's no longer a hindrance to your ability to live in close fellowship, kindness and compassion and love with God your Father. Remember, friends, what it cost God to forgive us. Here in this passage and throughout James, James refers to us as brothers. And I have said that the theme of grace within the, the letter of James is that he calls us the family of God. As soon as James calls us brothers, as soon as he mentions those words, 
a whole set of things start to fall into place because brothers means that we're siblings. How are we siblings? We're siblings because we've been adopted into the same family with God as our common father. People aren't born with God as your father. You're born again to God as your father. It's, it's to those who receive him, John says in John 1, that he gave the right to become children of God. It's if you have Jesus, then God becomes your father. He was your creator before, but with Jesus, he becomes your father. And when you were adopted in the ancient world, when a, when a Roman patrician adopts someone, it was typically an adult. We've been through this before. It was typically an adult because the father has no heir and his family line will end and he will lose, the family will lose its seat on the Senate. They will lose their landed estates. They'll be confiscated. And so he typically takes a, a slave, a young man manumits his slavery, adopts him as his own son. And in so doing, he gives that son the right and title to his family name, to his seat on the Senate one day, to all of his landed estates, all of his property, all of his wealth, all of the access that the father has then becomes the access that the son has. All that belongs to the father he gives to his son. And yet something else happens when he adopts that son. That son, that slave's debts and liabilities do not go away. But in adopting that slave as his very own son, All of that slave's debts and liabilities transfer to the father who is then obligated by law to pay them whatever the price. And when James calls us brothers, when God says he is our father and that he has adopted us into his family, understand what that means. That means that God has taken all of your liabilities and you bear them no more. It means God has taken all of your debts and you bear them no more. They have been born and they have been paid in full. And that's what sent Jesus to the cross to pay our debts for us. He bore our iniquities in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for it is by his stripes that we have been healed. Friends, when you see a church that is smitten by the gospel, when you see a body of believers living out God's forgiveness, tracking each other down, helping each other walk in God's grace, when you see that, you are seeing the church that Jesus died to create. As a brother of James and a brother of Jesus, you have a father. A father who welcomes sinners home into his family, into his home, who is always pleased to make space for one more. A father who has created his church to be a haven for sinners just like us. I've told the story that Philip Yancey tells before. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when she knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And, and that night she acts on a plan that mentally she has rehearsed many, many times. And she runs away from home. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit. She concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California maybe, Florida perhaps, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man 
who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before in her life. She was right all along. Her parents were keeping her from all that is good in life. And the good life continues for a month, two months, for a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium to see her. She lives in a penthouse. She orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair and all the makeup and the body piercing she wears. Nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways too. Nobody squeals in Detroit. After about a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, he says, we can't mess around. He growls at her before she knows that she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple tricks a night, but they don't pay much. And all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. If if sleeping is even the right word, a teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough grows worse, and one night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels instead again like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her. She shivers under the newspaper. She's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. An image of May in Traverse City, Michigan when a million cherry blossoms bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? Pain stabs her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing. She knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls. Three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time, she says into the, into the answering machine, Dad, Mom, it's, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. And if you're not there, well, I, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it gets to Canada takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes all of the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them first? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. 
Dad, can you ever forgive me? She says the words over and over again, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road. The asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road. The bus swerves every so often. A billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in her compact mirror. She smooths down her hair. She licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents are going to notice if they're here. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and they're blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know, but, but he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. Friends, there is a banquet waiting for you here. The Lord Jesus sets it before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, You are the one who sets out the feast. You are the one who invites home the strays. You are the one who pursues those who try to run away from You. You are the one who has loved us and washed us of our sins by Your own blood and made us a kingdom and priests to serve You and Your Father. You are the one who has adopted us into Your family at the cost of Your own blood because You are the Lord, the author of life, and the one in whom we hope. We consecrate to You now the elements on this table, Lord, that You would bring good news to Your family and through us to this great city. For we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.